baby cried the day the circus came to town Cause she didn't want parades just passing by her So she painted on a smile and took up with some clown While she danced without a net upon the wire I know a lot about her Cause you see Baby is an awful lot like me Don't cry out loud Just keep it inside Learn how to hide your feelings Fly high and proud And if you should fall Remember you almost had it saw that when they pulled the big top down they left behind her dreams among the hey everybody welcome back to the hustle it's John Lamoureux okay this week I'm excited for this one this one's a big one for me we are talking to the fantastic singer-songwriter Melissa Manchester so Melissa I think as everyone knows her career goes back like 50 years she was one of those key singer-songwriters in the 70s like Bette Midler or Linda Ronstadt or Carly Simon or Joni Mitchell or you name it. That's what I kind of put her with. So good. And her career has gone all over the place. And we talk about a lot of these hits in here and the trajectory of her career. In the 70s, she's right at the exact right place at the right time with all those people. But then in the 80s, like a lot of other people, their career gets a little glossier. The music becomes more new wave. Great music, but it's not really coming from her heart. And she's made over and she looks different. And from there, it just sort of slows down. But what's interesting and really good is that the last few years, the 2000s have been great to Melissa. She's put out some of her best work. So if you know her old hits from back in the day, I highly, highly encourage you to go look at what she's been doing for the last 20 years because it's solid. We talk about all of this. We talk about her collaborations with some of the greatest songwriters like her of all time, like Carol Bayer Sager, Kenny Loggins, Paul Simon. You know, she turned down the opportunity to be in Saturday Night Live. We talk about that. I love her music, and so I ask her stories about a lot of deep tracks that are favorites of mine. Hopefully you guys get turned on to them as well. But anyway, I feel like I've grown up with Melissa Manchester. She's been a big one for me for most of my life. And uh, I really love her, and I'm so grateful that we had this opportunity to chat. I can't remember. I think she still lives in New York. Might be L.A. It's always one or the other. I'm pretty sure it's New York. So let's say that's where she was calling me from. I feel like we have to start with the resurgence of Don't Cry Out Loud on Schitt's Creek. Because that is a <laughs> that's a much-beloved show, getting a lot of love, and that was a very perfect pop culture moment and I'm curious how did you were you told this was going to happen beforehand how, did you tell me the oh, whole sure. story okay well they reached out to um, my business manager I guess or lawyer to in order to license my performance okay and of course I said yes and then to see it was just as a punchline of a joke it was fantastic right. 
<laughs> right, right. As a fan of yours, I was so happy that you were getting this moment because they could have picked any song in the world yes. they wanted. Yes. And they picked yours. And yes, it's a comedic moment, but it's got so much heart. They didn't pick it because it's annoying. They picked it because it's a great song and that moment would be fun. You yes. know what I mean? Yes, yes. That, that had happened to me before on Will and Grace. Ah, I think okay. they used Don't Cry Out Loud. They may have used Through the Eyes of Love, but it was also for a punch, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is so fantastic. I love it's, it. You know, it's so humbling. You know, you're trying yes. to take it seriously and protect yeah. your compositions <laughs> and honor the writers or your compositions. So right, right. It's, it's just a giggle fest. It was yeah. Great. I love it. Okay, so I got to tell you when um, when I became aware of yours. So I'm of you. I'm 47. Mm -hmm. My dad is a was a conductor of symphonies. Who was your dad? Well, we're from Salt Lake City, Utah, so we're not big time or anything. His name's Terry Lamoureux. We lived in the Bay Area of California, and he started a symphony and chorus in the Bay Area, and then we moved to Utah. He started another one in Utah that was a pretty big deal there for a little while. And he's always taught piano and vo voice and stuff like that. And I remember as a little kid, him having, there were no pop albums in the house, but he had the first Melissa Manchester album there. And, uh, and I remember the back because you were blowing a bubble. And uh, I, I, that was so provocative to me because it was so different. You know, the, the front is this very, you know, thing with, uh, I don't know, it just feels so early 70s and it's just so singer-songwritery and then the back is you blowing this big bubble. Yes, the front was sort of bohemian looking. Bohemian, that's the word I was looking for, Sorry, yes. Okay. I'll fill all the words in for you. <laughs> yes, <laughs> thank you. Talking, you can't get me to stop. But the back was was all of the beautiful musicians as well as the producers, uh, Dave Apple and Hank Medris, and me blowing some bubble yes. gum. And yes. I used to chew bubble gum, well, sugarless bubble gum, to loosen my job before I was ah. saying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, that impression made it was a big thing for me. I don't know. From that moment on, I was keenly aware of everything Mel Melissa Manchester was doing because here this was different. You know, it was a it was a different image for a little kid to take on. And mm -hmm. uh, I told him and my mom that I was going to interview you, and he said, "Tell her what a huge fan I am, and he still teaches voice." And when he does, he has his voice students listen to you specifically as like an example of what to shoot for and what to uh, oh, wow. you know, try oh, to accomplish. I'm so honored. Well, having you know, having been raised around the opera, I yep. always appreciate conductors and musicians in that world who who appreciate what I yeah. do. That's yeah. Thank you, and please send him my regards. I will. He told me to call you as soon as we're done, so I will. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so one of the things that I've always wondered about with you, and there are so many artists, especially back in the early days of the music business, who were given this opportunity, but it took a long time for Melissa Manchester to really start to hit, you know? And there's, like, the, like I think about Hollow Notes. Hollow Notes, I think, had a, had a pretty decent-sized hit on their second album, which gave them the fuel to keep going, but it was another six or seven before it really started to take off. And I was wondering, what does someone like you, who's such an obviously talented singer-songwriter, and your albums are fantastic, but they aren't, they're not going platinum, they're, you're doing okay, are you getting frustrated? Are you thinking, what do I have to do to like get heard? Or are you just grateful you got a gig making music? That's what you all, that's all you want to do. 
well, it took me seven years to get a recording deal. So oh, I was grateful well. for that connection. And un, in an unusual turn of events, my first record company was Bell Records. They were known as a singles label, and I was their first album artist. Mm -hmm. So they had the good sense to leave me alone. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know anything about the, the machinations of the music industry. I was just happy to be left alone to make music with mm -hmm. wonderful musicians. But I was on those first two albums for Bell Records. Um, I was gaining a college audience because okay. I was playing in college coffee houses in New York and Connecticut and Delaware and New Jersey and Maryland and Philadelphia. And so, you know, selling 17,000 records seemed fine to me. You know, I was mm -hmm. like making music. Sure. But then when uh, Bell was absorbed into Arista Records and Clive Davis took over, he had a much larger vision for the company. Uh, Larry Utah was a fantastic gentleman, but when Clive took over, he had a he had a really large, and he was coming from Columbia, you know, so he already had a large, he was familiar with having a large vision for his business. And um, Barry Manilow and Tony Orlando and Don and I were absorbed into Arista Records, and when my third album, Midnight Blue, was on it, and I worked very hard to tour for record promotion um, and performance to support that album and that single. Mm -hmm. When it finally came onto the radios across the nation, it was really, you know, you could really feel the shift in attracting audiences and people recognizing the song by the opening BAMP and, mm -hmm. and all of that stuff. And, but it was, it was really, it was really something. And also, with, in terms of historical context, radio was very different in the moment that Midnight Blue came out. Because DJs were still, and listeners were still sort of um, navigating the, the direction of a radio station. And right after that, computerized programming took over. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. stages of a project I believe where you are doing a new album but it's going to be releasing a single every month right and each single yeah, is a revised right. version and Midnight Blue I think is the next one right yeah the, the album is called Review R Review that's it V-I-E-W because it's about the view of these songs that that were hits for me 
but because I've been doing most of them for such a long time, they really become like monologues. And you know, over time you start to tweak the harmonics. You don't really mess with the lyrics, but you know, some of the harmonics um, get, get um, enlarged and embellished. And because I understand the lyrics so much more deeply than I did yeah. such a long time ago, and it's such a, it's so incredible to have grown into this material that uh, that I wanted to um, explore it and record it. And the other reason that I wanted to record it, which is the same reason that many of my colleagues are re-recording their hits, mm -hmm. is because when we signed recording deals in the late 60s and 70s and 80s, nobody could fathom of the different revenue streams that are now. There was just yeah. no social media, nobody even knew what that meant. Right. And so the only and so our master tracks belong to those record companies. Mm -hmm. So the only way we we have any kind of empowerment is to re-record um, and create new masters. Yeah, you talk about the not changing the lyrics, but sort of changing. Now that you're older and more mature, you kind of feel the music differently. In your partnership with Carol Bayer Sager, and you've had others, but that's kind of the big one. How did that dynamic work? Was she always a lyricist and you were always the music person? Or um, how did it work? Well, it, was, it was kind of fluid. What I didn't know when I only learned out, you know, learned decades later was I was the first artist that she ever worked with. She uh -huh. was working with other songwriters, but she was literally draping songs on me with me in the room. Um, mostly I was at the piano. Every once in a while I would turn to her and say, what do you think, major or minor? And she, she, wrote very quickly and with great fluidity and and really captured the essences of our conversations that's nice. why the songs are so conversational in their tone because they literally came out of how are that's you amazing. Oh, yeah how are you? that's amazing and, uh, yeah and so so we shaped it and sometimes i would throw in lyrics as well but but she was mostly their lyricist and uh, i was mostly their okay I'm going to ask you about a handful of songs of yours that I that I love, and I really want to hear the stories behind some of these. They're from all over your career. I think my favorite Melissa Manchester song is I Got Eyes. And I'm sure you've heard this a million times. Anyone, any woman who is just feeling it that strongly for her man enough to call him a sugar loaf is the greatest line. <laughs> and then I want to smother 
my badass lover. Mm-hmm. That is, that is, that gives me goosebumps just thinking about it. <laughs> and I wondered where that's, what's the story of that song? Did you, ha, back then the rules were a little different? Was it ever an issue singing Smother My Badass Lover? Yeah, you know, I figured if I could cushion it in some really soft, groovy music, nobody would notice and maybe right. they should play it. Right. Um, but, but the story of I Got Eyes, I remember one of my musicians was telling me how he came on to this girl by saying, ooh, baby, I got eyes for you. And I thought to myself, I know how to write that. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's the thing, you know, I'm very big on eavesdropping, on glomming onto a phrase where you just really feel it mm-hmm. glom onto you. And in those days, I was very clear as to what I would write by myself, mm-hmm. what I would share with Carol, usually. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I got eyes, I really had a sense of that language mm-hmm. um, and the imagery and just what I got eyes meant because, mm-hmm. because you just sort of know viscerally what it means. You know? Sure. Sure. I love it. And it's, uh, I love that that kind of sexual strength comes from the mouth and mind of a woman. It's, yeah. uh, I, I mean, I, I, it shouldn't be a thing and yet it is, you know, well, guys you sing know, that kind of stuff all the time. You guys yeah. don't. Yeah. Well, history being, you know, being the context of everything, it was unusual in those yeah. days to step out like that. But, um, you know, that, that's what part of uh, being a singer songwriter is all about. You know, yeah. you, you use your life to create your art. Yeah. Did anyone, I, I honestly, did anyone ever say to you, you can't say that, or, you know, this will never get played on the radio, or um, you know, it's a little untoward for Melissa Manchester to sing yeah. Badass Lover. Yeah. Did that ever come up? Yeah. No, that did not come up. However, for my song, Just Too Many People, that was banned on some radio stations. Really? Somebody told me a long, long time ago Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, okay. people thought that uh, radio programmers thought there was some kind of subtext that was, I don't know, either pro-abortion or pro-life. I can't keep. Yeah, can't whatever keep it is. Whatever the bad thing was. Yeah. yeah. Whatever people were mad about. Yeah. Uh, really. 
Interesting. Okay. I have another song from those early days. It's another one of my favorite Melissa Manchester songs, and it's Oh Heaven. Another re- First of all, I'm just a sucker for gospel-tinged music, especially the really upbeat stuff. Mm-hmm. And something I love about, about that song in particular, but songs like that, is gospel music, when done right, can be a real universal language. It doesn't, you know, like look at all the Christmas songs that are written by Jewish composers. You're Jewish. I grew up Mormon. So it's not like gospel music is in our blood. But when someone like you sings a song that good, it doesn't matter what your feelings about God or spirituality even are. It's uplifting. It moves right. you no matter what. Right. You know what and I mean? I do indeed. And it is the power of the style of the music that is so that is so spiritual in its true essence. It has nothing yeah. to do with religion. It's just spiritual. Yeah. And um, oh, heaven, it changed to me. Thank you for choosing that. That's one of my sure. favorites. I wrote that not too many years after I studied songwriting with Paul Simon. Um, oh, right. I to study with him when I was 17. Mm-hmm. And um, a couple of years later, and that was just a, a breathtaking experience. But a, a couple of years later, I wrote Oh Heaven, and I wanted to use the Dixie Hummingbirds. And he had used the Dixie Hummingbirds on Love Me Like a Rock. That's right. And uh, I had reached out, yeah, and I reached out to him and I said, what do I need to know? You know, I. What do I need to know? And he yeah. said, "Well, these are these are truly religious men, and if they are not digging this song, they will be very politely thank you and leave." Mm. <laughs> and they wow. said, that, um, "Keep an eye on." I don't remember the leader's name, but he said to me, 
keep an eye on his foot. If his foot starts to tap out the time, you're good. So I'm there, you know. So I'm I'm there playing the track for him, yeah. and I have a, a you know I have a stretch vocal on it. And these gentlemen all had white shirts and suspenders, on all wearing hats, and they were as dear as could be, southern gentlemen. And all of a sudden, I see, <laughs> I thought mm-hmm. to myself, oh my God, that foot is going. Nice. That's good. Nice. And, uh, and yeah, and they sang on it, and it was so, it was so touching to to have. I mean, because the Dixie Hummingbirds on their own had you know 50, 60 years behind sure. them. Sure. Yeah. Uh, really rugged performing but so it was it was a real honor but uh, yes i love that song good me too me too um okay one more and then we'll get to some other things and then come back to songs uh we got i gotta ask about whenever i call you friend Uh, I mean, I'm a I'm a huge Kenny Loggins fan as well, and I love that song. Everybody does. Why did Stevie Nicks sing it instead of you? Uh, well, she sang it because I think her cool quotient was always much higher uh, than mine. And, I wondered uh, if back then it was more, you know, balanced or whatever. Okay. You know, it was just it was just one of those things. You know, Kenny and I got together to write this song because we had been together so often uh, as presenters on these uh, oh, interesting. award shows and that's yeah. how we met. And so he came over to my home one evening with a bottle of wine and his guitar and an idea and I had the, the grand piano there. And so we, we finished the song and he went into the night. And I tell this story on stage because I can't even believe it. But um, after he left my home, you know, in the day, we both had our boombox, and we both finished the song and recorded it on our cassettes. And he left my house, and I guess the next day went over to Michael McDonald's house, who was his buddy, mm-hmm. and played the demo board. And uh, Michael said, oh, it's okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Kenny said, 
really, it's just okay? He said, yeah, you know, it's a nice song. And I, that's the part I just, you know, recently learned about in the last year or so, because I went over to my, rec I went to Claude Davis, to uh -huh. the president of the record company, and I played him my cassette. And I uh -huh. said, what do you think? And he said, it's okay. What? And I said, really? Sounds like Can nobody's getting it? it. Come on. Right? Exactly right. <laughs> Yeah, and so, so as it turned out, you know, Kenny did that remarkable harmonics in the front as a tribute to Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys. Nice. And then Stevie did her, her performance and Kenny did his and it was, you know, it became really a, a classic record, I think. Yeah. But I, I uh, met Stevie uh, several years, a few years ago now, and I asked her, I thanked her for her wonderful performance and asked her if she performs it on stage and she doesn't she said it was too hard to sing which is funny yeah but wow. but now i'm getting ready to in a couple of months i'm going to get ready to go into the studio and i do not know who my partner in singing this will be but you're going to do it though yeah oh, sure. oh, good right. good good okay um so a couple of questions about that number one um does kenny come over with the intention of you know, what's the end game when two songwriters as good as you two come together on a night like that? Is it, um, does one of you have an idea? I've got a name of a song and I think we could start here or a melody line or whatever, or does he just show up and you two think, let's figure this out. And then secondly, when you wrote it, were you thinking this is going to be for me and Kenny to sing together? You know, he was really more well-established than I. He and Jim Messina had. True, true had been around longer than I had. So I was just happy to be invited to his party, so to speak. Okay. And so when he left, I didn't know what he was gonna do with it. He didn't turn to me and say, boy, I can't wait till we get into the studio to record yeah. it. He never, never did. You know, he okay. thanked me and we finished the song and, and then he went off into the night. And I must say I was deflated by the response to the song. And it is only, you know, sort of now, where I'll get back up at bat and record it in a way that I that is evolving. I mean, it's a, there's a way that I do it on stage, which is closer to the record. And I have reached out to Kenny to record it with me many times, but he he hears it in a much quieter vein, and I I really I really don't. So I don't know if I'll record it with him, but it's definitely with somebody. Okay, else. okay. I don't know how else to say this, so I'm just going to come right out and ask it. Tell me how you feel about the 80s. Because wow, um, I feel like that was when the Melissa Manchester that people had grown to love in the 70s got polished over so much so that she became this other thing that was also really good, but she wasn't the thing that made her special in the first place as much. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, the the eighties was very confusing for me personally, okay. because disco showed up and electronics showed up, and suddenly recording was not the milieu of the artist but of the producer, and so I lost my place. You know, other than "Don't Cry Out Loud" and um, you know being on the Academy Award shows, I was primarily known as a balladeer. That's yeah. that's you know I have a great good voice. Um, but again, Clive wanted me to be, or at least try to be current, um, because the complexion of what was played on the radio 
you know, there was, there were, there are these algorithms, how many beats per second to, is the best, you know, the optimal rhythm to dance to, best tempo to dance to, I mean, and it was all that kind of stuff, which was sort of really not interesting to me. But my feeling is I am open to an adventure if I can find something to justify it. If I can oh. glom onto a really well-turned phrase or an interesting uh, composition or something. And when, uh, when I was given You Should Hear She Talks About You, or who was, which was written by my two friends, uh, Dean Pitchford and Tom Snow. great song yeah this is a great song and Arif Mardin, who was the most magnificent producer Legend. a gentleman and musician extraordinaire it, you know they they created a they created a a, a a bed for me to find my comfort zone in because it was so unusual yeah. <laughs> for me yeah. plus it was you know it, it you know it wasn't real drums anymore blah blah and I'm, I'm a very uh acoustic person i like right. to hear drums and i like to hear keyboards, whatever but i tried to find my place because you know time does not go backwards with music and unlike linda ronstadt nobody was very interested in me singing ballads orchestrated by nelson riddle so you know it was it was how to how to move through this because in those days the goal was to get on radio there was no other platform other than radio. You know, and then I made the Mathematics album, which is odd because my students really like that album.
staying up late. Really? <laughs> yeah, they really do. It's very, you know, it's very youthful and energetic. Uh-huh. And when I was recording it, I I allowed myself really to be the girl singer. I did not understand the sounds of it. They wore me down. And yeah. so I did that, you know, Robbie Neville and everybody and Robbie Buchanan, they were so talented. And I felt, you know, you do that and let me know what I need to sing and when. Which sounds like a cop-out, but it's just... Um, it's how that adventure was unfolding. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to ask specifically about uh, you should hear because um, Dean Pitchford, Dean Pitchford, is such an incredible songwriter. But um, you know, he's got two or three tent poles from an outsider's perspective. Two or three tent poles. He comes in with fame, knocks it out of the park, wins Oscars. Then there's you. The, the <laughs> you should hear, and then there's Footloose. And then the guy doesn't really have to do anything, not that he didn't, but I mean, he's set for life just on those, you know what I mean? So how did you, how did he, you just mentioned him as being a friend. How did you become friendly with Dean Pitchford? Well, I had been co-writing songs with Tom Snow. Oh, that's true. That's true. And Tom and Dean were writing partners. Okay. um, Yeah. So that's Okay. Do you know if you hadn't sang You Should Hear, uh, what if someone else would have sang it? Was it written specifically for you in mind, or could it have gone to, I don't know, anyone that else, Patti LaBelle? Yeah, that I don't know. Okay. Huh. That I don't know. Good question. Yeah. What a, because I, I mean, that's a that's a great song. And that, that song was big when I was a kid, and that's really when my cognizance of Melissa Manchester started to really blossom because I I love that song still do but maybe I wasn't paying enough attention in Salt Lake City Utah but it felt like there wasn't very much Melissa on the radio after that you know what I mean it just became kind of less and less and yet you you have this huge hit win a Grammy and everything granted these albums as good as they are like you said they're not they don't represent you so much. They're more kind of representations of the era. And um, are you feeling kind of squeezed out of your own career? Or are you feeling like you don't have control? Well, it was partially that. And it was partially I could not find my footing past a point. You know, I was busy. I was writing for Disney. And um, I had written a couple of pieces one for the a song for the great mouse detective mm-hmm. and this score for lady in the tramp too with mm-hmm. the late norman gimbal but i i just was losing my footing yeah. and you know there's some artists that they just want the hits and i really understand that i just i just didn't know how to function that way because when things start to when you're a writer and things are working for you you don't really know why things work or why they don't work. True, true. <laughs> you know, if you could recreate it, you would every time, right? No one yeah, knows. Because, yeah. yeah, because writing is so, um, it's so um, elusive. Mm-hmm. So that when you finish your composition and you think you've gotten the balance of it, it doesn't mean that anybody else will get it. Mm-hmm. You know, so I was surprised at midnight. My blue worked out and I was thrilled. And the only thing harder than the first single is the second single, you know, and we followed that up with Better Day.
Americans and it didn't quite have the staying power. I mean, they charted, they didn't chart in top five, but, but a lot of the songs charted. And at one point I was, I had always dreamed of being on Atlantic Records because their history with women singers, Roberta Flack and Aretha, uh, was so spectacular. And that's where Amit Erdogan and, and Aretha Mardin were and Jerry Wexler. And I finally got um, a contract to do one album there. And the regime of the record company was changing the week that my album, If My Heart Had Wings, came out. And, I, and so they just let it go. And I thought to myself, and I prayed so hard. I said, you know, you have given me such a deep gift. And I keep coming up against a brick wall. What is it? I, I need to back away and gain some perspective. And luckily, I had two beautiful kids to raise. Uh, so I don't, I'm not sure, but I don't think I had a nervous breakdown. I think okay. I had kids to raise. Okay. Because, okay. <laughs> yeah, then, that was, um, oh, go ahead, please. That was, that was around... 94 i think in 93 or something like that and um i had done the tribute album which was my tribute to several of the great women singers that meant mm -hmm. so much to me and i recorded that with peter max brilliant uh, orchestrator but then i just i just sort of stepped back and i started writing for theater and i had a musical i sent a letter to my love that played off broadway and as i said i was writing for disney yeah and then then i started writing with the great paul williams mm -hmm. and he said you need love to start paul. Yeah. He said, you need to go down to Nashville. I, and I, it hadn't occurred to me. He said, yeah, in, because in LA, everybody wants to know what you've been doing lately. And in Nashville, they'll just be happy that you showed up. I said, they'll be happy that I showed up. Yes. Said, yeah, be and it was, it was remarkable. It was yeah. remarkable. I've never been in a songwriter's mecca like that, yeah. where, you're just, where you can tell whether you were writing on a Monday or a Friday. And the reason was because when you were writing on a Monday, you were still getting your footing. But by Friday, man, your songs are really good. That's great. Oh, wow. Great. Did you move there or just travel there a lot? No, I traveled there a bunch. I, okay. was, I was doing um, a week every month. Okay. And it was really, it was really spectacular. Okay. Um, I have some more questions about this, but I'm going to sprinkle in one more song of yours that's, Maybe my second favorite song of of, uh, of yours, and it's um, when I look down that road. On a parched September morning, was it haze or was it smoke that filtered how I saw my memories from the old meal kisses. On my mother's waiting cheek To the woman she encouraged me to be When I look down that road I see the world inside this town I weave the threads of my life That lead me to Some faded, yeah, but some have found the light Cause one thing that I'm sure of There are lucky stars 
Wanna thank them all for showing me a lie. And I look down that road. I see the world inside this town. I weave the threads of my life. Believe me to where I'll stand now. It was hard working hands that held me. Yes, that is the album that I wrote out of Nashville. Yes. So that was why, that's why I mentioned it here, because it's been a while since Melissa's put out an album where it's largely her material. You know, mm -hmm. you're, t you're kind of back taking ownership of your career and of your artistry. Yeah. And this, right. that album is so good. I love that Thanks. album. And uh, yes, and that's probably my favorite song on it, because you can tell you can tell the wisdom and the like world weariness that you've earned in that vocal performance, you know, right. that's how it feels right. to me anyway, as someone yes. who's always looked for you and listened to you and think this is Melissa passing to on to all of us, what she's learned from these last few years, which probably were a little tough. The eighties and the nineties were a little tough for Melissa, just different, you know, yeah. Yeah, they were, they were, uh, you know, the, the main thing, because I love what I do so much is to figure out how to connect the dots so you can keep doing it. Yeah. That is go. always, yeah. <laughs> that's always the challenge of the artist's walk. Um, and it's, it's unforgiving in that way, because as soon as you say I'm done, nobody cares, <laughs> you know, not really, you know, some sort of a suggestion of a memory but that I still have the hunger to create and to, to keep the narrative going is so interesting for me. It is the same hunger, literally, that I had when I was 17. That, you know, it's like the soul, the soul has no age, yeah. it's just soul, yeah. the energy, yeah. the, the light. Yeah. And the hunger is the same way, to just create and to just keep going. I could see that. And like I said, when I listened to that album and the You Gotta Love the Life album, you can tell that this is somebody doing what she wants to do. It sounds like to me anyway, you know? Yeah. Well, well the thing that's fascinating as well in the, this day and age is that now that I'm truly an independent artist, mm -hmm. which is code word for you have to do four times the amount of things yourself. <laughs> Right. But right. that's what it is, you know. Yeah. My students don't know about what it was like to sign a record deal and have a great big engine behind you. Yeah. You know, the record companies, as you know, were really the banks. Yeah. And so, so, so but it was, you know, all in-house and, and, and that it, there were a lot of services provided for you. But mm -hmm. now, you know, we are all on a sort of a equal level playing field. And it's fascinating. It's just, yeah. you know, it is, and I said this, to, I, I do say this, that it's as if we have rediscovered the wheel, but it's not quite round the way we understood it. That's perfect. That's perfect. That's perfect. Um, okay, one more song. I really like You Are My Heart. This is what we've been waiting for. moment in paradise where the world that we knew made room for our dreams 
sharing my life with you Like the ocean kisses the shore Perfection is in our eyes And the feelings go deep, so deep And darling, you are my heart forever My favorite little piece of it is that it's got finger snaps and this is one of this is an example that I talk about on here a lot of a song that's elevated by somebody thinking of a little bit of pixie dust that is different that that becomes the thing that you remember you know and I just think that's the thing no one thinks about finger snaps but when (laughs) Melissa Manchester is singing this song Somebody somewhere is saying, you know what it really needs? It needs finger snaps. And that's what elevates it to a special song. Can you tell me about Uh, that one? That's so sweet. You Are My Heart was some, I I have a very dear friend. And whenever he uh, sends a text, um, he always signs uh, signs off by saying, you're my heart. Uh, And one day I was just looking at that and I thought, "That's, that's really something. And he had been with his um, with his fella for years, and then the um, equal equal marriage mm-hmm. act was passed. And I texted him, and I said, "Good morning. Do I hear wedding bells?" And he said, "Yes, indeed. Yes. And I'm going to write you a song, and it was called You Are My Heart.' Oh, yes. And so yeah. So I I wrote it and um, recorded it, and it was at the end." of our recording sessions for You Gotta Love the Life, which was my new album. And it was my first crowdfunded project. And we had no money left. There was just nothing. And so I just went, you know, I just had everybody come in and start snapping. Genius. Which is such a, yeah, which is such a 1950s approach. You know, you hear that on old records. But it was so great to do that. It was so sweet. And I did all the background parts. It was Oh, I love it. I love stuff like that. You know, that's where these little flashes of genius come from. (laughs) Stuff like that. That's amazing. Um, Okay. Something, something that I had been thinking about and getting ready to talk to you was I was, I was always wondering, you know, if you, while you're coming up, Bette Midler is obviously a peer of yours. You guys have history. Barbara Streisand sort of there too. I would put the three of you in kind of a similar, on a similar path. Those two go into acting. You do some, obviously, with Blossom, but I always wondered if that was something you could have or should have done more of. And then, getting ready to talk to you, I was listening to an old interview where you you auditioned for Saturday Night Live well, as, I, a, as a role player. Yeah, I, I auditioned with Chevy Chase, and in that moment, I had just gotten the offer from Bell Records after trying to get a record con- contract for seven years. Yeah. And then I had this opportunity too, and I had to think, you know, what was the one that was the closest to my heart that I could keep yeah. 
chasing no matter what. And it was always music. I mean, it's always been music, but, you know. Wow. Now you're tight with bed or at least were back then. I don't know if you still are, but I mean, was there a, did she have a similar fork in her road where it was like, I can either, cause she continued to make music while she was making beaches and for the boys and stuff like that, which you were in. Yeah. It, Could you yeah, not it, have it, done that, done both that same I, way? You know, I, I, it was just a different path. You know, she, we were both very hungry young women. Um, but the opportunities, I did some theater. I did the national tour of uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber's Song and Dance. I took over for Bernadette Peters and did that national right. tour for six right. months. It was really hard. Mm-hmm. And then I did uh, part of the national tour of Music of the Night, also Andrew Lloyd Webber. And, um, you know, the truth is I'm not, I'm not a Broadway baby. I love theater. I worship musical theater. I love going to musical theater. I love watching actors sing my notes, mm-hmm. but I don't have a real hunger to do it. Mm-hmm. And I've not experienced it on Broadway where you're just in one place. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm told that that's much more um, pleasant than yeah. being on the road for a long time. But, um, you know, I did For the Boys with, with Bet, and um, I think, I think my I think my truth is that I'm supposed to concertize and write music and help people help people on their journey. Mm-hmm. Let me serenade them on on their journey. I think mm-hmm. that's a thing. So you got to give us more details on this Saturday Night Live thing. So you auditioned. Who who asked you to audition? Were you friendly with them? You say, was it offered to you and you had to turn it down? What's the? I did, yes. Well, yes, it was offered to me, and I turned it down. And um, yeah, because I had to go start making records, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, but but Chevy Chase and I were in the room when I, you know, it was interesting. I I had met fantastically talented people the one year that I went to NYU School of the Arts. Christopher Guest and Tom Leopold were a year ahead of me, and they were screamingly funny then i mean they're just the way they are and they've always been the way they are and while i was i think the year that i left nyu i performed on the national lampoon radio dinner album that's right yoko ono and the voice of deteriorata uh based on the famous desiderata and i played piano and harpsichord and shortcut amid the noise and waste and remember what comfort there may be in owning a piece thereof. Avoid quiet and passive persons unless you are in need of sleep. Rotate your tires. Speak glowingly of those greater than yourself. 
and heed well their advice, even though they be turkeys. Know what to kiss, and when. Consider that two wrongs never make a right, but the three do. Wherever possible, put people on hold. Be comforted that in the face of all aridity and disillusionment, and despite the changing fortunes of time, there is always a big future in computer maintenance. that I experienced, which was so really extraordinary from my point of view, is that growing up in the Bronx, but spending most of my grown up childhood in Manhattan, Manhattan was just the right place to be growing up. I got really? For somebody like me, there was an adventure, there was a creative endeavor on every street corner. I believe it. I believe you know, it. when, I was, when I, I was singing jingles by the time I was 15, I was a staff writer at Chapel Music by the time I was 17. When I was uh, 16, I was an usherette at the Vivian Beaumont Theater in Lincoln Center. I was parking cars for a little theater company. You know, down the street from where I lived, five blocks away from where I lived, was the first children's television network, which was- Oh yeah, Sesame Street, yeah. And I was 17 and I banged on the stage door and of course, there's no security van. And the, the stage manager said, what do you want? And I said, oh, well, I just wanted to do something. And he said, well, go to the editing room. It's you know, to the left. And I went into the editing room and I met everybody there. And I was essentially a gopher. But what was fascinating is that the discussion in the editing room was what would happen to the integrity of Sesame if they came out with a line of toys. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. So, so Manhattan was just, it was so unbelievable. And then singing jingles, you know, I met Patty Austin and Nikki Ashford, Valerie Simpson, and Barry Manilow, who introduced me to Bette. And, and then working with Bette, that's when I met Carol Sager. I mean, it was just, it was just fantastic. Yeah. It yeah. was just fantastic. Um, it's funny you're saying this because my next question was going to be, I was curious what you, what your favorite thing about, or maybe even the thing you miss most, if there is one, about your musical career in the 70s, in the 80s, and in the 90s. And so when you look back, when you're thinking about starting out in those first six or seven albums that are all happening in the 70s, what you did, what the songs you wrote, what's your lasting memory when you just think, the best time of all of that was this. What is that? You know, it was it was such a it was such a definitive chapter in my life because because my life for five years that I cannot recall, but I have the evidence. <laughs> I wrote with Carol, I wrote with Carol Sager. I recorded the album and I toured and repeat and I did that one year after another and it I was. I was so exhausted that I have no memory of it. I just see pictures and people tell me about it and yeah. I hear the music so I know it existed. And the thing is also that 
you know, Carol Sager and I wrote, unbeknownst to us, we were writing for young people and, and their emerging consciousnesses. Ooh, young women nice. in particular. Yeah. And, and even young men and young gay men who had nowhere else to go. Yeah. And that, and that was the, that was really the unexpected and during gift. Um, because, you know, I still write with a pad and a pen, pencil, whatever. And so I'm just facing blankness. And then, you know, several hours later, there's a world that didn't exist. Yeah, yeah. And, and what you find, what I found, you know, decades into this, once I go into the lobbies after the concerts and I shake hands and trade hugs and listen to people and, and very often wipe away their tears. What I've learned, because I've always believed in the song form. There was always something that was always so resonant to me about simply the song form. You know, whether it was songs that came off of the Broadway stages that became pop hits, you know, in the 40s and 60s, or, or songs that took on an anthemic quality that could galvanize a nation, lift it up, move it forward. Mm -hmm. um, and that happened a lot in the, what was interesting about the 70s, you know, you asked what I missed. The 70s was a, was a, what I call a bridge generation. I consider myself part of that bridge generation. Yeah. Earlier than that, a singer-songwriter was usually a folk artist, right? Right, right. But, but for me, who was deeply immersed into the world of musical theater, mm -hmm. um, into the world of the Beatles and Sly and the Family Stone and James Taylor and Stevie Wonder and Joni Mitchell and Laura Nero, these people were changing the substance of what the American popular song was. They were infusing it with new metaphors, new shapes. Uh, they, were, they were no longer, they were insisting on getting beyond Moon June Spoon. You know, they were, they were capturing emotional moments in life, not the easy way. Yeah. You know, they were distilling it into beautiful compositions. Yeah. But, but what I have learned because of all of that and what I've tried to write and what I have learned from my fans is that songs of mine, like songs of others who were in me, songs become life rafts. Yeah. They the rope that you hold on to because not everybody can write a song and so when your listeners tell you that song of yours helped me through a rough time or that song of yours helped me just decide not to commit suicide yeah. or brought me through vietnam or got us to decide to make a baby and your music was playing or <laughs> we were playing or we were playing it as we were walking down the the wedding aisle yeah you know, that is not anything to be taken for granted yeah blessing of thunderous proportions for me. yeah yeah i could see what a powerful talent or responsibility to have as a creative person especially a successful one like you that has been influencing and affecting people for 50 years now or whatever it is that must it's, it's, feel amazing that's crazy yeah. um Okay, let me see. No, uh, so favorite thing about then about the 80s or lasting memory of the 80s? Well, um, I got to be on the Academy Awards. True, twice in one night, yes. right? Yes, 
Yeah. yeah. Well, I sang two songs on one performance, and then two years later, I sang another song. That's true. Yes. And, um, oh, yeah. And the first one was 79, wasn't it? Where you did yes, two. So maybe that wasn't 80s. Anyway, yes. sorry to interrupt. And, you know, and you should hear She Talks About You happened in the 80s. And, yeah. and um, my kids were born in the 80s. And, um, you know, it was just, it was just, uh, it was really, really interesting. It was really okay. interesting to try short hair and, Disco yes. music and have a great big set on stage and have two semis and a bus and that was really interesting and right yeah right um, you looked great by the way as as a young kid who is getting into Melissa Manchester Melissa Manchester with that new uh, you know s short hairstyle and the you should think and everything yeah. I really like that look a lot when I was <laughs> a kid I'll just tell you that right now um, anyway. I'm curious if anyone has approached you about making a documentary. Rock docs are kind of a big thing right now. And thankfully, some people's careers, like Linda Ronstadt or Susie Quattro or whatever, are getting these fantastic documentaries made about them that are recontextualizing and re-energizing their career because it's giving you this substance and this understanding of where this great artist fits into everything. And when I think of people who deserve one, I think of you. Has that well, ever come up? Thank you. Uh, apparently, it is being done now. By really? A, yeah, by a couple of filmmakers. They're interviewing people, and they, they at one point, they said, would you like to see what it is? I said, no. <laughs> no. Right. If you'd like me to be part of writing it, uh -huh. then you know, show it to me. But no, you do what you're going to do, and I hope I don't hate it. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll see. Well, I can't wait. I hope that happens. Um, Okay, I wanted to, I mentioned earlier that we touch on the business side of things a little bit. Uh, you've mentioned students a few times. I don't know if I knew that you teach. What do you do? Yes, what are I you was, teaching? I was uh, adjunct professor at USC at the Thornton School for four years. Okay. And now, yeah, and I, I was teaching, um, well, many things, but I was, I was basically teaching songwriting and performance, and uh, that was interesting. But that's where I learned my students taught me so much. My students taught me all about uh, what, about crowdfunding and being an independent artist. Mm -hmm. And that's yeah. how I learned. I actually had one of my students explain the different uh, platforms, Kickstarter and Indiegogo, blah, 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 blah. I said, buddy, you better start every sentence with once upon a time. Otherwise, I will not understand what you are talking about. So true. So and, true. And, and you know, you know, my manager, Sue Holder, and, and I, we decided, you know, again, it was just an adventure I didn't want to miss because I know there are, there are plenty of colleagues of mine who are just, it's just so overwhelming yeah. that you just don't, you just get so nervous. You don't know what foot to put forth yeah. in the first place. But we, we put it out to my fan base and it was such a sweet response because I found that my fans truly are a village. Yeah. And um, when I put out my 20th album, You Gotta Love the Life, which was just unbelievable. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we did all the things we're supposed to do, promise the perks and send all the stuff. And, and at one point I said, you know, it was going to be released in September, but it's not quite ready. It's going to be at the end of September. And everybody would say, you don't worry. You just do the work. You're patient. <laughs> We love you, blah, blah, blah. Yes, it's so yes. cute. But, you yeah. know, You Gotta Love the Life was really interesting because, like I said, it was my 
first foray into crowdfunding. We recorded it down at Citrus College, where I'm um, artist in residence, and they have a magnificent state-of-the-art studio there. And we had incredible artists show up, the late Al Jarreau and oh. Stevie Wonder. And yeah, it was just it was just Dion Warwick. It was yeah, just, um, yeah, they all appear on your on the album. Um, yeah. I was going to ask about that. Your love is where I live. How is it that with one note, you know it's Stevie Wonder on the harmonica? That's the thing. That is you know the what thing. I mean? You know, I, yes, I wrote that song with Tom Snow quite a while ago, and, it, and you know, I could never place it on a record or, you know, I was with the record company. They weren't into, into the song, whatever, but it's a, it's a beautiful song. In my yeah. And, um, and I was gigging in Florida. And I get a phone call at two in the morning, which is never a good idea. <laughs> and the phone rings and I'm deep in sleep and I pick it up and this is what I hear. Melissa, it's Stevie Wonder. I hear you making an album. I'd love to play on it. Are you kidding me? Oh. Whoever's pulling this prank better shut up soon. <laughs> no kidding. It was, it, was Stevie. it was Stevie. Yes, God bless him. It was him. And he showed up with his driver and his nutritionist and his press people and his boxes of harmonicas. I didn't oh. even know you could have boxes or harmonicas. I had no idea. He was so generous. He just kept playing and playing and playing and playing. And he kept saying, is that all right? Wait, let me do it in again. I have enough for, you know, five songs. And then when it was over, he just wanted to hang out and schmooze and talk. Oh. And he did. And we had to close the studio down and they 
the studio, because it's on a college campus, was closed for the spring break. But there was a small band, a small group of students who were rehearsing down the, the path, down the hallway. And when we were over, we were starting to escort Stevie and his people to his car, and he heard the kids rehearsing. Oh. Now picture this. Stevie Wonder starts running towards the music. Running. We're all running after the blind guy. Okay? So he's standing at the threshold of the door seeing the kids. They all look, and they see who it is, and they stop. Yeah. And, and one of the girl singers comes over to him and says, would you like to, would you like to sing with us? And he says, what do you got? And she okay. said, well, we've been rehearsing superstition. Well, oh, goes man. to the center of that room and they're singing and playing and he's singing and everybody's crying and screaming. And yes. it, was just, it was just beyond. Oh, I want to cry just hearing that story. That I can't it. imagine anything that makes life more worth living than a story oh, like that. It was remarkable. It was My gosh. Yes. Now, I would have imagined, I mean, you had that song, Stevie's Wonder. You've got heaven on your shoulder, up and through the night, special in with you. Uh-huh. They say you got heaven on your shoulder, wondered if you two had become friends, but it sounds like you didn't really know each other before this. We didn't, but he was aware of the song. Okay, okay. Yes, I had yeah. met him um, at, at some kind of a function where Clive was, and uh, I was introduced to him, and he did know the song. He was okay, aware okay. I mean, you've been, a, like we've established, you've been at this for 50 years, getting to know just about everybody. I would imagine your paths have crossed with most people that you love and respect and probably a lot of people you don't love and respect you've seen it all you know well, yeah i mean I've, I've met a lot of people um i can't say that i'm that i'm tight with a lot of people in my business my friends are mostly regular folks you know yeah. moms that have had their children grow up with my children yeah um yeah. people who don't really care that much about what i do <laughs> You just want to know we're all good and right. stuff to eat. You know? Right, right, right. But, um, 
Okay. Uh, so, so I, I appreciate my colleagues to no end because they just yeah. make life good for most of us yeah. by their art, you know, by their creations. But um, I was never much of a party goer, and I was okay. never much of a, you know, it, performing was so exhausting to me that I just crawled into bed and prayed for strength to do it the next good day. For you. Good for you. <laughs> that makes sense. Um, okay. Oh, going back to the business thing before I forget. When you, and if this is too sensitive or too personal, you tell me, but like when you get your mailbox money, what's the biggest earner? What's the thing that, because you've written a lot of songs and some of your bigger hits were written by other people, but you perform them so you own, the, you don't own them legally. You own them as in you're the person they think of when they hear this song. What is there a thing? Like what's the, what's the biggest earner on there? The biggest, uh, probably, probably whenever I call you friend. Okay. Uh, you know, residuals go, royalties go down. Although as a singer, I get paid what they call a mechanical mm -hmm. for the performance. Right. So you hear it on Shit's Creek or on Will and Grace. Yeah. They pay a license fee for my performance. Okay. That's what I thought. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, speaking of being paid to write songs, you are also known for many fantastic covers. You're an, you're an excellent interpreter of a lot of other people's songs. And there's a whole, I mean, I could name hundreds of them, but I want to focus on two in particular. One is Monkey See, Monkey Do. That Michael Frank's album, The Art of Tea, is one of my oh, favorite albums of all time. Magnificent, yes. Yes, I love it. I, it just takes, they do not, the sound of that album doesn't exist anymore. No, it doesn't, it you know what I mean? It no, is it so of its time, it'll never be, you can't capture that. Not even, not even ironically could you capture that. I love that album. So what yeah. made you decide to do Monkey See, Monkey Do? Well, I mean, I worship that album too, you know, just like Key Largo, Bogey yeah. and Carbo. Oh my God, yeah. are you kidding me with those lyrics? Um, but he was one of those, he was one of those touchstones uh, in the 70s. He was just yeah. 
so good. You know, it was early James Taylor. It was Michael Franks. These were these were soft Kenny Rankin. Yeah, yeah. And these men, these men were were so soulful. But it was a it was it was a white soul, and it was um, the heartbreak was right on the edge. You know, it was just so. Anyway, so Monkey See Monkey Do just seemed like like um, it was such a weird turn of phrase, and that groove was so crazy. So that good. That groove was so deep. It was just yeah. fantastic. Yeah. I love that song, and um, I love your interpretation of that song. And I wanted to ask another one. Um, Stand. mentioned Sly and the Family Stone earlier. I, um, you do a great version of that, but you wouldn't always imagine that Melissa Manchester would do such a good version of a Sly and the Family Stone song. And yeah, you do. Well, yeah, well, the thing is, I, I am a groove person. I mean, Earth, Wind, and Fire is where I live and breathe. And, yes, right, and Sly and the Family Stone before that, and the thing that was so unique about Sly and the Family Stone was that with these grooves as a basis, he was writing anthem after anthem after yes. anthem of yes. self-affirmation. Yes. I mean, it was just groundbreaking work. Yeah. You know, and then Earth, Wind & Fire showed up and refined it, refined it beautifully, beautifully. Yes, agreed. But, but yeah, but those were, those were the people that, you know, that I was on the Midnight Special with, mm -hmm. but when I would go to Clive Davis to say, can I make one of those records? And he'd say, no. Oh. Nobody wants to hear that. That's not so, true. Well, you know, it, it, it is what it is, you know. Yeah. And, and also the thing is that, you know, as I said, history being the context of everything, I was talking mostly to a room of men. True. Good point. And, you know, and short of writing a lot of my stuff, I was the girl singer. So there were battles. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I wasn't alone. Whitney Houston had the same sure. battles, and yeah. Janis Joplin had battles. So, 
you know, so in the end, you have to pick your battles. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I just finished reading Bruce Springsteen's memoir. Oh, nice. Fantastic, because a lot of it, you know, I recognized in terms of the, the rigor of the yeah. road. But there is that, that is, there is that definite, you are a male, and this is what it looks like to you. Yeah. And yeah. I was, a, I am a woman, and it didn't look like that to me. So, yeah. I could see that. And I feel like that topic is being, that's one of the things that's sort of being reevaluated and redefined with a lot of the Black Lives Matter movement that's happening and everything else. It's, um, we're learning that um, when you are a white male, you see the world one way. And because there's more of you than there are everyone else, um, you probably aren't aware of the way that women are seeing the world or their placement in the world or the images they define themselves by. And that's goes the same for black men and women, Kamala Harris or whatever, you know, we're finally, it's at least, I feel like we're in the, we're in the beginning stages of uh, evolved thinking that mm-hmm. hopefully, hopefully gets us over this hump. You know what I mean? Right. I, I think what is interesting to your point is that this, this COVID lockdown has given us a, a chance to pause and be still. Yeah. And there is no, there's no more kicking something down the, the road and the next generation will take care of it. We have to look, yes. we have to look at yeah. the injustices. Yeah. I mean, because there's nothing else to do. It's we true. have to sit and look at what is in front of us and what is in front of us as, as yeah. a white woman is what I take for granted. I don't think about walking outside of my house or getting into my car or going to the supermarket. Yeah. But honestly, yeah. if I had to every day, which is what a large portion of our nation, right. our beautiful nation has to, right. and that has stopped me in my tracks to yeah. think differently and to do differently. I agree. I, I, I think and I hope I get the sense that a lot of people specifically white males are beginning to realize that just the world looks very different when you're a different gender, a different nationality, a different uh, race, whatever it might be. And the fall of people like a Harvey Weinstein or whatever, the, I mean, that's just one guy and there's other people kind of coming in the wake of him where you're just, you realize I had no idea it was this bad. And I had no idea these secrets were being kept to this degree. I, and we're all kind of awakening to this stuff now, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. Right. Well, I mean, things okay. are in place, and one of the things in terms of Black Lives Matter is that these are issues that have never been reconciled. Yeah, that's these it. Are discussions yes. that have never fully taken place mm-hmm. um, because there's so much at stake keeping the existing systems in place, and it's yeah. just not right. No, it's no. not right. No, and. Um, Yes, and I, people who are against, well, I should leave it out. Anyway, the people, if you can't get on board with the, the thinking or the attitude of Black Lives Matter and anyone else, Me Too and all the other kind of awakening moments that are happening these days, I really don't know what you're looking at. I don't know what your problem is, you know? There is no downside to allowing women to have a voice and black people to have equality. There is no downside to this. That's exactly right. I think it was, I think it was either 
Maya Angelou or Marion Wright Edelman who said, your greatness does not threaten me. Yes. Good one. Your, your child's greatness does not diminish me at all. It yeah. lifts us all up. Yeah. That reminds me of something I wanted to ask you about. Um, on your website, you have this awake series or something that seems to be going on. What? Explain that to me. And it seems like, I don't know if you're, there's the one song that's on there where you did an arrange, you put a saying or like a, it's not a poem, but whatever it was to music as kind of an uplifting, to, maybe I'm getting this all wrong. What is this awake series that you're doing? not a series. Awake oh, is a not. that I wrote um, with words that by Rabindranath Tagore, who lived about a hundred years ago. He's a Nobel winner for literature. He was Indian, and um, he was an essayist and a playwright and a poet and a musician. Uh, and I discovered his writings when I was about seventeen, and I would I, they were so rapturous. They were so rapturous that they could either be interpreted as being expressing love to either a lover or to god mm -hmm. it was just that magnificent mm -hmm. and i always heard something but i could not distill what it was i was hearing so i would look at these writings you know once or twice a year i kept them right by my piano and and i kept hearing but i could not hear what i was hearing it was just this sort of wash and then about uh, four years ago, I, you know, it was another, I was going to open it up. I made my pot of coffee. I was in my pajamas. I opened up the book. I looked at the, at the, this poem. It's sort of an essay, I guess it is. Yeah. And I heard to hear it. And I stopped everything because the thing about inspiration is, is if you don't pay intentional attention to it, it will disappear. Yes. And so I started writing that day, and I'd never written, you know, soprano, alto, tenor, bass, and piano parts. I'd never written it out like that. So I wrote about four bars every day, and it took me about a month to write it. 
And when this pandemic started, I felt this would be the appropriate moment uh. to manifest this. And I had a bunch of beautiful singer friends of mine who agreed to learn these tricky parts. And so I posted it and, and um, I may write a, a second one. I don't know, but okay. it was, it was what I needed to do. The words are so, the words are so stunning and it was not written about the United States. It was written about an entirely different country, but the similarities, the, the cry to, to the call to arms is um, spiritual arms. Yeah. It's so, uh, so compelling. And uh, that's what I did. Good. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you did. And when I, I was really moved by it. And for some reason I thought this was going to be the first of a series of things like this that you might be it doing. May but, be. It may okay. be. I just, you know, now that I'm doing the review, it might yeah. Oh, nice. Okay. Okay. I remember one thing. And this is, um, before we were talking, I was watching old clips of you. And there's a there's a clip on YouTube of you performing, um, I think it's After All with James Ingram at an award ceremony. Love James, and I had been trying to get him on here for years, and he basically disappeared from public view. And I wondered if you knew him. Did you know oh, him well enough to know what was going on and why? Yeah, I knew him very well. We had performed frequently in a tour called The Colors of Christmas. Oh, nice! And um, he was just magnificent, and then he started to decline into dementia. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah, yeah. he, he passed okay. away. And, um, but yeah, it was, it was beautiful to me. Okay. I mean, yeah, when he, I was so bummed when he did pass away because I, had, like I said, I had felt like I was trying to get, I had wanted to get in touch to see if I could interview him too and let him know that I loved oh, him. Yeah. No, no, I was gone. I yeah, I tried to get him to sing on um, "You Gotta Love the Life," and his yeah. wife said, mm, 
Oh, shoot. I, I, I think it may have been Alzheimer's. Okay. That must have been fairly early onset then because he's been gone, again, out of the public view, not gone, gone, but, um, you know, we haven't seen or heard from him since like the mid-90s, basically. You know, it seems like. I guess, maybe. Maybe it wasn't that yeah, far ago, know, but it maybe. seems like it. Yeah, maybe. Anyway, I just wondered where he went. And I, when people go away that you love, you worry that they go away because they don't feel loved. And then I think, I loved him. I wanted him to know, you know? Oh, and if yes, that I, helps, then yes. great, come back, you know? Yes, I, yes I'm sure that he, you know, there, there is a, a, a group, you know, James Ingram and Jeffrey Osborne. And yes, love him too. And, yeah, and and everybody's performing. You yeah, know, you yeah. just don't see us on television. Yeah. But um, Good. I, but when I, you know, when I, it's like Al Jarreau. Al and I toured and made videos together. And when he agreed to sing on You Gotta Love the Life. Where there's only dreams. Hope is that distant star, the one you carry in your heart. First there's a glimmer, nurtured to a glow. Till you're awakened to a life where you're never alone. And there'll never be a moment when there's only shadows in the skies. Guaranteed the sunrise, wipe the tears from your eyes. It's gonna take a big light. You've got to get ready for a big light. Turn it on, cause it's gonna take a big light. Turn this world around. It's gonna take a big light. From a great big soul, you own your light brighter than gold. Big light, gonna turn this world around. From the Appalachian. To the China Wall Each soul holds a candle No light is ever too small To fight against the darkness Poverty and pain So walk into this great new day Let your dreams lead the way You'll be living it, He was just incredible and passed away Yeah, I love him too I love him too. Okay. Well, I, um, thanks for talking with me, Melissa. This has been something I've wanted to do for a long time. And uh, it's so cool to hear the stories behind all these songs that I really love Thank and you. to be able to let you know that I love them uh -huh. means a lot to me. And I wanted, so last question, and you may not even have an answer. I always ask this hoping for something really fun and fireworky and it never quite works out but what is your favorite story to tell when you look at when you look back at 50 years of this what's one of the highlights for you when you sit back and you think you would never guess that I got to meet somebody or I sang this song or when I heard myself on the radio whatever that is what's your favorite memory of this all this time well I you know the this one story jumps out only because when I tell my stories Half the time, I can't even believe it. That's why I love to tell the good, story. Good, tell it then. Ella Fitzgerald was always the light for me. She and Judy Garland, but Ella was was a particular a particular light. And um, I had done a Memorex commercial with her. I remember it well. I was going to ask yeah. you about this. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But many years later, I was part of a tribute to her at Lincoln Center. Ooh. 
and it was an all-star jamboree yeah. and honestly the audience would have just stayed there till yesterday yeah because everybody just loved her so much and it was me and i was singing with the women from manhattan transfer and it was bucky pizzarelli and isaac uh, and it's like pearlman and bobby mcferrin and one after another blah 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 and at the end of the performances, the great late Joe Williams brings her out. And the audience is screaming like I've no never way. heard. They are ripping the playbills and making confetti. No way. She sings a little bit. And the band is all stars, Benny Carter and everybody. Yes. And they finally come, you know, they finally calm down and she thanks everybody. And she sings a teeny bit. And then she starts to walk off. And again, the audience just erupts. They gave her the key yes. to the city and blah, blah. Yes. She walks past me and she said, did I do all right? Oh, yes. Oh, man. Yes. That's a great story. I can feel you on that. What a great story. What a great story, man. That is great. Well, thank you, Melissa. This meant a lot to me. All right. There you have it. Melissa Manchester. I hope you guys enjoyed that. That was huge for me. I don't know if you guys ever have basically like out-of-body experiences where you're in the middle of something that's happening to you in real time and you think, I cannot believe I'm here right now. I cannot believe this is happening to me right now. That's what that was like. I'm on Zoom. I'm looking at Melissa Manchester's face talking with her and I'm realizing I've seen Melissa Manchester's face my entire life. And, but here she is talking to me. Anyway, that's huge. There is a lot more, as I said earlier, to discover in Melissa's canon. And I, if you need any guidance, let me know. But we had to close it out with Through the Eyes of Love. Uh, classic song, Oscar nominated from Ice Castle. So good. Um, anyway, and there was just something about playing this episode in December that felt right. It's not like she's a Christmas artist, but just something about you have to play Melissa Manchester when it gets close to Christmas. And I don't know why that is. Just felt right. Anyway. All right, next week, our guest is, it's our last producer for a while. We're going back to 80s and 90s alternative. The guy's still very active, very involved. Uh, incredible stories from that era. And um, it's the last one I have in the can. So we're going to run that one, and then we're going to focus on artists for the next couple of months. Huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man, for all that you do. Thank you, buddy, for being my partner in this. You guys, you can find us on Facebook. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Um, and I hope you guys went and listened to Gunnar Nelson's deep dive of the debut Nelson album, After the Rain. It is so good and so much fun. All right, thanks everybody. We love you.
I can take the time I can see my life as it comes up Thank you.